Welcome to the 2018 Prima Podcast Series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima Podcast, Patrick Zaprinsky will discuss Medicare Secondary Payer Best Practices. Patrick is the Director of Lean Resolution at NewQuest. He obtained his law degree from Valparcio University of Law with an undergraduate business degree from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Patrick is admitted to practice law in the state of Illinois. Prior to joining NewQuest as a Medicare Secondary Payer Compliance Attorney, he spent over five years specializing in Medicare Secondary Payer Compliance and Workers' Compensation Plaintiff and Defense Work in the Chicago land area. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome, Taekwon. How does the Medicare Secondary Payer Act affect the handling of workers' compensation and liability cases? Well, the important thing to understand about the Medicare Secondary Payer Act is that it's expanding the scope of exposure beyond your state law and the state issues of your workers' compensation and liability claim. And this is because Medicare may have made payments related to your case, or there may be a reasonable expectation that Medicare will make future payments associated with the case. And the way the Secondary Payer Act has done this has been through areas of Medicare compliance. And that begins with Section 111 reporting. You also have checking and determining if Medicare had made payments before the settlement and then also settlement. The Medicare Secondary Payer Act also affects these cases because if Medicare has made payment and a suit is filed, there is the opportunity for Medicare or the uh, claimant uh, or the plaintiff suing for that reimbursement to collect double damages. So this does raise the stakes as to how much Medicare or that, that plaintiff can seek if Medicare is not properly reimbursed. This act or this federal law also extends liability or responsibility to plaintiff's attorneys, claimants, claimants of states, carriers, and, and self-insureds. So this really has a major effect on how you handle a workers' compensation and liability case. And what this means and requires is that when you are doing claim management, is you really need to focus on who is making payments for medical benefits, and that's on accepted cases and also disputed cases. So the, the claim management team can't just simply walk away while this claimant treats, you know, during a, a disputed case and then come back to the end of it. Attention needs to be made as to, well, if the claimant is getting paid and, and we're not paying for it, who is paying for it and will they seek reimbursement or try to seek reimbursement at the end of the claim? What should an organization consider when deciding on their MSP compliance strategy? So when considering an MSP compliance strategy, I think the first thing that needs to be understood is that there's no one way for every claim to comply or be in compliance with the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and its regulations. There are multiple ways that you can consider Medicare's interest and be in compliance with the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. So I think coming to the table with that understanding 
is very helpful. And what you need to know is that you're first triaging the case and then deciding what MSP compliance strategies should apply to it. And this is because there are many factors or circumstances that, that play into how a party can consider or reasonably consider Medicare's interest. This is because you have claimants' attorneys, claimants, defense attorneys, state law and regulations, you know, the workers' compensation judge or the liability judge. You also have physicians who are making opinions and recommending treatments, you know, throughout the claim that can impact all of this. So really what needs to be understood is that your compliance strategy should be a comprehensive review of each claim and then choosing a course of action. And so that's where I think you need to start when considering your MSP compliance strategy. The things after that, the fallout, you know, after you make those that triage decision, you are then thinking about, do we need to consider a future medical allocation? Has Medicare made payments in the past associated with this case? And whether or not Section 111 reporting needs to be made, you know, right away if there's an acceptance of ORM, or if it's going to be made at the end of the case, that settlement with that total payment of obligation to claimant uh, reporting. So there's a lot to, to consider, but going into it knowing that there's multiple courses of action after looking at a case and then deciding how to proceed, I think that's the major step and consideration when deciding your MSP compliance strategy. What are the options for considering Medicare's future interest in the settlement? There are various ways that you can consider Medicare's future interest in the settlement. Those ways are generally not providing a future medical allocation and documenting and defending the fact that no future medical allocation was provided. There's the commutation uh, set aside. This is generally a full exposure or what the parties reasonably expect for treatment after the date of settlement. There is also the compromise approach. Compromise approach takes into consideration that there are disputes on the case and is generally uh, computed by either providing an MSA that's based upon a percentage of settlement or an MSA that funds the accepted portions of the claim. The other option is to seek CMS's approval, which is a voluntary process. And this last option to seek CMS approval is a topic that is frequently discussed. And the issue with this is that Medicare continually states that submission to CMS is a voluntary process and that the parties are not required to do this. What happens with the voluntary process is that you're subject to Medicare's rules in how they evaluate what's reasonably considered considering Medicare's interest. And what can happen is that you may regularly see or continually get with CMS approval an overfunded MSA or an MSA that funds all possible treatment versus probable or reasonably expected treatment. And so you you have that issue when you're seeking CMS approval. And so these are the options to consider Medicare's future interest. Each one has its, its own risks. And so when you're considering to use these type of tools to consider Medicare's future interest, 
one may be better for a different case than the other, and they may be impacted by those factors that I discussed, you know, in the second question with the claimant, claimant's attorney, defense attorney, the state laws and regulations, the judge, physician, you know, claimants and claimant's attorney may have a different uh, risk tolerance than carriers or self-insured or, or third-party administrators. So I think that sort of wild card can, can play a factor with these options in considering Medicare's interests. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here are some words from Prima's member services manager, Danica Williams, regarding Prima membership benefits. Prima is a membership organization dedicated to advancing the knowledge and practice of risk management in the public sector. Prima members come from a diverse range of disciplines, entity types, sizes, and share a variety of titles, including risk manager, human resources professional, workers' compensation coordinator, employee benefits coordinator, claims administrator, safety personnel, risk pool administrator, just to name a few. Despite their titles, there is one resounding theme among these individuals, and that is that they manage risks within their entity and importantly, risks affecting the public interest. Prima members enjoy a robust array of educational programming, risk management resources, and networking opportunities. Some of Prima's member benefits include access to blogs, podcasts, webinars, Prima's job bank, Prima's online community where members have the ability to connect, share, and solicit information directly from their colleagues, Prima's library of risk management documents, Prima's flagship publication, the Public Risk Magazine, and member discounts to all Prima events and training. Becoming a Prima member is one of the most worthwhile career investments a risk management practitioner can make, not just for themselves, but for their entire entity. To learn more about Prima member resources, visit primacentral.org. How should companies address conditional payments? In one word, I would say aggressively. And this is because Medicare is aggressively seeking reimbursement for payments it's made. It's questionable whether those payments it's always seeking for, one, requires reimbursement, or two, whether it's actually related to the case. And something or a phrase I'm, I'm trying to change in the industry is looking at these conditional payments and the data service and not necessarily thinking, well, is this data service related to my claim? I think the question needs to be, is this data service disputable under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act? And so I think if you change that mindset internally, you're going to see that Medicare's collections are, are not always requiring reimbursement as they're indicating. And so, you know, with that, you have the other aspect of this, which is what I call, or maybe others have called, the lean collection game theory. And really what this game theory is, obtain a judgment, wait till the appeal deadline passes, and then enforce that judgment. And so what you see a lot of times with these collection cases is that Medicare will issue its initial determination or final demand. They then wait till nobody appeals or, or the appeal deadline passes, and then they're referring debt for collection. 
the U.S. Department of Treasury does its thing, processes, and either, you know, they have multiple ways to get the money. You know, they can garnish the claimant's Social Security benefits. They can garnish the tax refund from the claimant. But they also are garnishing the carrier's tax refunds as well. And so it's really important to understand that when that happens, it's not the end of the collection. You may have an option to dispute those charges. And so when I say aggressively, it means if you think Medicare collected on your case and you think they did it wrongfully, you should investigate and see if there's a a way to minimize that collection or the amount that Medicare took from you. Because that what we're seeing and what, what I'm seeing is if you are aggressive, there are ways through the regulation, the administrative appeal process, that you may be able to get at Medicare and get them to reduce the amount they're taking or trying to take or the amount they, they already took. This is a an interesting area for me. I am handling a lot of conditional payment negotiations. So this really is a cool area, I think, to be aggressive and try and minimize the amounts that Medicare is taking from from the carriers or or from the claimants. And the other aspect of this is to think about these collections in a way that Medicare should have the burden of proof in these cases to properly seek collection. And, And again, you know, I think having that mindset, the one, are these charges not are these charges related, but are they disputable, but also that that Medicare should have the burden of proof here. I think if you have that mindset going in and reviewing these collection letters from Medicare, you're going to naturally be aggressive and you're going to see better outcomes in your negotiations and also, you know, possibly in the past negotiations and and digging deeper on those cases. What is the Whistleblower False Claims Act and does it have anything to do with MSP compliance? It does. So the the Whistleblower False Claims Act does have something to do with MSP compliance. We're not necessarily seeing many cases that get decided at the Supreme Court level or the district court level. We are seeing cases survive motions to dismiss and then settlement after those claims. But what is happening is that the argument here is that if Medicare is required to be reimbursed and either the claimant, claimant's attorney, or the applicable plan doesn't properly um, reimburse Medicare or notify Medicare of their right to reimbursement, you may be violating the False Claims Act. And so the idea is that you could make an omission or not tell Medicare something or tell Medicare something didn't happen, i.e. I have a workers' compensation settlement and I haven't told Medicare about it. I haven't told my medical provider about it, that there are expenses that should be covered in the settlement. You know, those sort of things, you know, could be possibly considered, you know, a false statement causing payment to be made by Medicare. So that's where I think come into issues uh, with the Whistleblower False Claims Act. We also had seen some federal court cases filed arguing that, you know, a specific company isn't considering Medicare's interest, and that was this Take Moto case. And that case, you know, boiled down to the vendor was asking these companies to hire him for these services, and they didn't do so. And so 
because of that, he was arguing that they weren't considering Medicare's interest. That is what I gathered from that case. I think it was a leap, and I think the court found that as well. You know, you're taking a giant step from just because we're not hiring your services to not complying with Medicare. So, you know, it it does come into play. I think we have yet to see sort of strong cases in the Supreme Court deciding this issue, specifically relating to the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. But you are starting to see these connections that can be made, I think, from from not uh, doing something required under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act um, and violating the Whistleblower False Claims Act. Again, this this is a very interesting area of, you know, regulatory and federal law compliance um, with the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. It, it does have a, a big impact on the workers' compensation and liability cases. So, you know, Paying attention to who's making payments for your medical benefits and who possibly is going to make payments in the future is is just something um, you can consider on every case and start to make sure, determine if if you need to bring in this, this Medicare compliance piece. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Patrick and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk.